The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Hello, thanks for joining us for another episode of The Other Side podcast. I'm Scott Kirk here with Lucas Sullivan, and today we will be talking to Karim Ali, who's a partner in charge of diversity and inclusion at the law firm of Porter Wright Morris and author. Thanks for joining us. Scott Lucas, thanks for having me. I just want to start off by asking you, which is harder, being a black man or being a gay black man? Ooh, good well, question. Well, he's both. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question, Scott. I think it's, it's, it's one of those issues that I, I suppose I don't think about often, but it does come into play in different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've, I'm black, so obviously when, you, when I walk into right. the room, you, you know that I'm African-American man. Right. And typically, you don't know that I am also a gay man until I just mentioned my husband or the last trip right. that I have taken. And I, I tend to go out of my way when I first meet someone to um, be very intentional about establishing my gayness. Because I think Why? Oh, I, I think it has being intentional and, and normalizing who you are is, mm-hmm. I think, a vital part of expression. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those areas that I think, considering where I started, like when I started my career, I was not out. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was a, a struggle and conflict of trying to figure out, well, well, who do I tell and how does this work out and what are people going to think? And that takes a lot of energy. Yeah. And so I tend to just put it out there. And if someone has an issue, they'll let me know. No one ever does to my face. But it really helps to, I think, uh, lower the level of tension in the room. I think mm-hmm. I was on an interview probably in the last year when a, a candidate was in the office and we were just we were just talking through an interview and in the process i mentioned oh my husband's going on vacation with me um in the next couple weeks and she smiled we kept going through the conversation and then towards the end of the interview she just kind of confided that hey i'm really glad you mentioned that you had a husband i wasn't sure how porter wright deals with gay individuals and she had a girlfriend and she wasn't sure how to navigate that and i mean that helps to show how welcoming your environment is you know you have to have the people who are there who look like you who act like you who who have some of the characteristics that you have and part of normalizing gayness is you know when i go and talk to my clients they obviously say i'm african-american right but you know many of them probably don't have many contacts with gay attorneys Mm -hmm. and this is just another opportunity to kind of put another data point for them gotcha this whole thing of like this may be not how you have to do it but it seems like maybe you have to like announce yourself at some point and this is something that is just foreign to me I know I'm a white dude so that's why it's foreign to me but it's like the fact that you have to acknowledge this at some point but your blackness and your gayness is just it's still somewhat bizarre to me that you have to do that I mean, because if you were heterosexual, you wouldn't tell someone initially like, hey, I'm heterosexual. No, heterosexuals don't have to do that. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, there's there's a great deal of privilege involved with being a heterosexual person. And I don't think people need to announce that they're gay. I do it intentionally because of the role that I play. I have a, a hiring role. I have a role of training people. I have a role of developing talent. And from my perspective, I think it's very important to be out and open so that I am clear about what I represent, what other folks represent. I think it's going to be different for different people. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in law school, I would um, I was out, but I wasn't. I did not present gay, so to speak. I suppose I'm not sure what that means, but there's a there's a way that people perceive, and so people didn't know that I was gay. But I soon learned that. 
part of being who I am is, you know, just to let people know up front. And that kind of came from like my first friends in law school and in business school. I mean, I've met my first gay people who were out, who had friends who were straight and it was okay. I had never seen that before I got to Columbus and and it was a fascinating experience for me. And, And from that, you know, that ensuing 10 years of development, I realized, you know what, this is, there are probably a lot of people like me, African American men who are gay, but don't feel comfortable being in their own skin. And I saw it as one of my roles as to be, you know, be out, be on the forefront of African American issues as well as gay issues. And so I don't really, getting back to your question, Lucas. I don't think I can make a choice. I mean, I choose to be as as vocal on sure. equality issues. I choose to be as vocal on issues dealing with race and gender. I mean, if you look at my Facebook page, my three main issues that I post about to the extent that they're political, it's equality towards women and pay equity, the treatment of African-American men, mistreatment, misidentification, and also gay rights. Those are my key issues. And those are the issues that I choose to talk about in my personal life. And from the standpoint of a business person, I think it's important for me to kind of carry on that same approach in my business. Where did you grow up? I'm from Houston. You're from Houston. Yes. So did you have to come out at some point when you were younger in your youth? No, no, no. I didn't come out until... So you didn't have to formally tell anyone no, no i was accused on occasion but you were t- accused but yeah which, which tends to happen with young people but no i don't i don't think i really came out until i mean probably till i got to columbus is my thought and so when you came out what was that like like what happened oh it was certainly a slow process and you know i, I over the years i would meet friends who were who were out and was like hey Kurt, you gotta be out it's a much easier existence and i'm like yeah whatever on my own time and for me, it made a lot of sense. And that's why I'm very sensitive to, to other people, whether it's my coworkers or it's people that I just connect with who happen not to be ready to, to be out. I think it's one of those things that's very, very personal. And it was a fairly slow process. But once I found allies and got very comfortable with being myself, it was much easier. Your firm supports the Mansfield rule, which basically says that firms are required to consider at least 30 percent of women lawyers of color, lawyers with disabilities and LGBTQ plus lawyers for significant leadership positions. So when you joined your firm, did you tell them initially that you were gay? Like, Was this rule even in place then? No. In your experience, how did that happen? Well, it was an interesting evolution. Uh, the Mansfield Rule began, it's in its third year this year. The Mansfield Rule is based on the Rooney Rule, which is what the NFL used to get underrepresented groups into coaching and other leadership positions. The idea behind it is to allow for to help build a pipeline of future leaders in law firms, but mm-hmm. also has a lot to do with just recruiting. You know, in order to have the future leaders from underrepresented groups, you have to have the attorneys right. uh, who are able to become partners and then equity partners. And the idea is when you are going to recruit, you know, lateral candidates and sometimes law clerks, you're going to make sure you're giving 30% of the opportunities to interview for those positions to previously underrepresented groups. Mm-hmm. On the leadership side, 
you want to make sure for every position that you have, every committee that you have, every leadership committee, that when you are trying to fill a vacancy, you are going to make sure that you are providing, you know, 30% of the people you're going to consider will be from you know, previously underrepresented groups. In my case, we I didn't have the Mansfield rule when I started. Mm-hmm. I had the benefit of being a participant of the Columbus Bar Association Minority Clerkship Program, which I think is a great program, has provided some great results. And it basically gave me an opportunity to work at Porter Wright as a first year law student. You know, from that experience, I was able to, I got an offer to come back for a second summer, had a great time, got an offer to work full time. And that's why there is an appreciation among, you know, a lot of local law firms to support, you know, pipeline programs to get more people involved. And I guess I'm just a um, basically um, evidence of how the program is, is working. Are, are you still often the only black person in the room? I look at diversity broadly. I am very intentional when I'm working with my firm's managing partner, Bob Tannis, about identifying future talent. And African-Americans are not the only underrepresented right. group uh, in law firms. And so he's very intentional about, okay, what are the leadership opportunities available? Who's available to do that? And are we making sure we're including diverse candidates? But to your question, yeah, it's a firm of our size. We have um, three African-American equity partners. We definitely want more. We definitely are doing a much better job getting African-Americans uh, and other people of color, LGBTQ individuals into the pipeline. But it's a slow process. What about because I'm sure people will hear this and they'll hear affirmative action. How is this program different or maybe not even affirmative action, but people may hear this and think that if they were, let's say, a white male, a heterosexual white male, that they would be overlooked for a position in favor of a minority, a person of color or a woman or a person that's LGBTQ+. So how would you respond to that? You know, Scott, that's a good observation. I think one of the, the critical components of any successful DNI program, and I say DNI is abbreviation for diversity and inclusion, is to get full buy-in from the entire firm. The entire firm is not people of color. Right. There are a lot of people who need to understand and agree and get on board with what we are trying to accomplish, which requires, you know, deliberate action. It requires getting the white men involved in all of the initiatives that we're trying to do. We have a women's leadership initiative that we have like probably monthly meetings. We invite men and women attorneys to these meetings. When we have speakers come in, it's very well attended by men and women. That's a big part of the process. You know, if you're speaking to people who believe what you believe already, you know, there's no point. Right. You know, if you speak to people who are already on board with the fact that we need more diverse talent and they all happen to be diverse attorneys, that's great. But you really need the people who are the rainmakers, the equity partners, those that are one. And most, I mean, a greater percentage of them are going to be in most law firms, non diverse. Mm-hmm. And so you want uh, this group, you want to work with this group to embrace the program and to agree that, hey, this is something that's worthwhile. This makes a lot of sense. This adds value to my ownership of this business. I think you will on occasion find people who will ask the question, well, what about me? I was talking to one of our associates recently, jokingly, you know, I said, yeah, I totally believe all lives matter. It's true. We all have some value, no doubt about it. But 
Today, we are focusing on the underrepresented groups because that's a problem. At some point, you can't look at the numbers and say, well, 70% uh, of the population of, of, of white male partners is the status quo. We should keep it that way and say you want to fully embrace diversity. You know, I was recently told by um, one of my colleagues that a person complained about the fact that this one attorney was being put on one or two matters. And this one attorney uh, is, is a woman. She's phenomenal. She's, uh-huh. she's great. Everything I hear about her is wonderful. But the question was, well, why is this person getting all these, these matters? And then I said to myself, well, is anyone asking why all of these other groups are staffed with just white men? And so it's like, if we're not willing to ask that question when the scenarios reverse, I think it's difficult to, to have a serious conversation about diversity and inclusion until you have an appreciation for the fact that what exists probably is not equitable. And just to give people an idea, you know, the American Bar Association last year put out a, just kind of a 10-year snapshot, and they reported that. In 2007, there were about 4% of all lawyers in America were black, and another 4% were Hispanic or Latino. And they said by 2017, those numbers had only risen to about 5%. So despite the the population makeup is four to five times that in some cases. And so this is an area that's been a really heavy lift for a long time, just like it is in other industries, but in the legal community, you know, there's been, according to the American Bar Association, there hasn't been much progress made there, maybe some minimal, but it, there's still a long way to go. Absolutely. But one thing, like, on a personal, like, are you put in a position a lot to just be, like, the token black guy or the token gay guy? Like, the stuff I hear, you know, and I joke with Scott about it, because, quite honestly, we don't have many black people working here. And so, like, whenever there's an issue that arises that has to do with the black community, it's like, you've got to answer for all of it. We've had police officers in here who are black who kind of feel the same way. Like when something when something's going on, they've got to represent like the entire black community. That's a good question. I remember one of my first jobs, it was in marketing and I worked in a bank uh, in the South. And uh, one of my colleagues who was handling this ad campaign came in and said, hey, and it was like an ad campaign. We were in a, a primarily African-American city and this ad campaign was targeted towards financial services products to African-Americans. And the imagery was like kente cloth and a very kind of, you know, it harkens back to the days where you know that was how you connected to black people. You just put in some kente cloth. And I just kind of looked at him like, I don't know. I, I don't represent all black people, but do you have any marketing research that says this resonates with your, your customers? I mean, our customers? I don't know. Don't ask me. And so I look at that and I say, I am certainly not. I can't think of any times that I played the role of a, a token add-on. I make a point of letting people know that if you don't intend to have me work on your work, don't put me on your RFP. And I'm, I'm really intentional about that. Well, so, but basically what you're saying is if you're not willing to let me make you uncomfortable with some questions or asking why you do things a certain way, then don't have me on board. Is that basically kind of what you're saying? Like, uh, if you're not willing to have these conversations, don't bring me around. Essentially, I mean, I mean, I often lead some of my meetings with this whole, you know, description of the fact that I'm a troublemaker because I always try to push people and to make people a little vulnerable about some of their their beliefs that they, they may have. But I think that's kind of part of the process and it's part of the role that I take of always trying to stay engaged with people to get people willing to try new things. Um, I, I I really don't think I think I, mean, I think tokenism is a thing 
But I mean, to have real change, to have real diversity, you really can't have tokenism. You know, the reality is if a person can't do the work, they can't do the work. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter their gender. It doesn't matter. So, you know, I have had some degree of success because of my ability to do whatever it is that my clients want me to do. So anyone can say up and down, well, you have the job because you're black. Well, that's nice and wonderful, but you know, I think I'm doing okay. Generally speaking, you don't get to my role or a similar role and be incompetent. I think it's easy to kind of dispel any, any notions of, of tokenism. And that should be the case, you know, across the industry. But I reckon- But, I rec- but is there a sense of combativeness ever with you? Or is it, you kind of hinted about it earlier where no one ever says anything to your face. Like, do you have these conversations and then you know there's, there's whispers behind other closed doors, but in front of you or when you're having a discussion, it remains mostly PC? I will share this. I think- what we've done, we've worked very hard at Porter to allow for questions and to allow for honest discussions. And in that honest discussion, I may not like the, the tenor of the discussion, but I appreciate the fact that people are willing to say um, what they believe. And I think that's fine. I mean, you know, we had a... Even if it's racist. Uh, I, uh. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I, I think for the most part, people aren't making racist comments on average. most people are not bold yeah. enough yeah to do and, that. And, and but most, even like a tinge of like you know they don't may not necessarily mean to be overtly racist but words that make you kind of cringe when you hear them or the way that they're put and you have that's a moment where you have to choose like okay do i do i say you don't have to come out and say it's racist but do i do i come out and say like hey that's kind of inappropriate or do i just let that go well here's one of my firmly um, held beliefs. I learned this in a training session when I was working at L Brands, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. And it's this notion of assuming positive intent. People make mistakes. People sometimes say things that are ill-advised, ill-informed, and I totally get it. And I think it's really important to leave space for growth. I'm not going to call everyone a racist who says something that offends me. I'd be calling too many people racist, frankly. <laughs> Or I would call too many people sexist or misogynist. I mean, people say things based upon their knowledge, and that's okay. The issue that we struggle with is making sure we're providing the information to help answer those questions. You know, recently, we um, at Porter Wright celebrated Pride Month. We've never done it before. We were very active across the firm. We held various activities just to promote our celebration of, of Pride activities in all of our markets. And um, I was excited by all of the people willing to participate, willing to wear pride stickers, willing to wear t-shirts and just engage in the process. Uh, That kind of caught me by surprise. And I was really proud by this. But, you know, I later found out that, you know, some people, I mean, one or two people, you know, it's it's a big company. And so you have one or two people who may have a, a concern, you know, well, why are we celebrating this? You know, I have this religion and I firmly am against this and, and, or at least celebrating it. Mm. And, and I appreciate it, you know, that perspective. Perspective. I don't agree with it, but you know, you have to kind of use that same type of logic and say, okay, well, I'm not a Christian, but I certainly enjoy the Christmas celebrations that we have at Porter Wright. The fact that we we are off, many people take off on Good Friday. There are many other beliefs that the, the individuals at my firm celebrate, but just because I don't celebrate doesn't mean we should stop it. Mm. And my role is to make sure that we are providing the information about why we are doing what we're doing. Be inclusive. Be willing to hear someone else's perspective. It doesn't mean I need to adopt that perspective, but I appreciate everyone doesn't see the world the way I see it. Just to add on to that, I think what I found 
in my own personal life and the people that I know is as black professionals, the higher you climb up the corporate ladder, I think that's just part of life. Right. It's, it's learning to be a minority. And unfortunately, sometimes you are the token black, whether you want to be or not. And it's not fair to be that way. But I would rather if I was in a situation where I was in an environment where there was no person of color to speak about the black experience or help another person relate to a black person's circumstance and I can help articulate that, then I'm all for that. However, at the same time, I also don't want the weight of an entire race of people on my shoulders. So I, I think we all as black professionals, to some degree, we have to learn how to do that dance to be us as individuals but at the same time we are whether we like it or not representative of a a larger group of people what i would want to add to what you just said i'll push back a little bit on this this idea of of, of token i believe i like like when people push back I, I, i believe true i'm definitely one of the few gay people in the room so to speak Mm-hmm. Um, harkening back to my favorite musical, Hamilton, I believe I am the only African-American in the room most of the times. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't call myself a token. I think it is true that sometimes you'll have a few women, sometimes you have a few gay people. I think that is true as the world exists today. But I believe we, we always play a vital role. I don't believe, I mean, my, my role as partner in charge of professional personnel um, is not to represent the black attorneys. Right. It's to, how do I recruit retain, engage, train attorneys, no matter who they are. Right. Do I give special attention on some occasions to African-Americans or people of color? Because those are the ones, historically, we've had issues retaining. Oh, absolutely. Do I help those people of color navigate some of the pitfalls of being in a law firm? Absolutely. And that is a role that I gladly take on. But I have some colleagues who who don't necessarily want that role. And I'm totally fine with it because they have a different role. They have a role of providing clients. They have a role of providing client connections. And I appreciate them for being able to do that. And that's the same thing for, for women attorneys. You know, some of our women attorneys are very active and very engaged in our women's leadership initiative. Some are not, but they all have different roles and it's okay that some people want to be the the savior of the people right well but i think what scott's saying here and i i'm not saying i agree with it i think i kind of do though is you may not approach it that way and i believe you but when you walk into a room and you're the only black person a lot of people in that room are expecting you to represent the entire race yeah like like it's you may not want to do that and choose not to do that but they're putting that on you yeah. And that, I think that's what he's talking yeah, about. Let, let, me, like, let me just be clear here. I am not calling you a token. I'm not calling myself a token. Yeah. I'm not saying that that is some badge of honor that any black person wants to wear. But those around you but are putting that yes. on you. So it doesn't, I guess to a certain degree, you may not consider yourself that. But when you walk into that room, as Lucas was saying, other people for them you may be the only interaction that they have with with a black man hardly ever Mm -hmm. and so whether you see yourself as that representative or not they do and it's not fair that's what i'm saying it's not fair it's not fair to use as an individual because you're you're a person Mm -hmm. and so you you don't you shouldn't have to represent these different labels or classifications but often when you're in that situation whether willingly or not you are you know i don't know 
if and that we can is my disagree. We can agree to disagree on that. Okay. I don't know if that's my experience. I should say. Okay. At least in my current role and what I have been able to see since I've been at Porter Wright, I have not seen that on average. I do remember once. That's awesome. I do remember once getting an invitation to an event because the general counsel happens to be Mm African-American and I called the partner involved to account for that nonsense. But for the most part, I haven't had that experience, Um, but I recognize that experience exists because I've had that happen to me before in other venues. Yeah, absolutely. So on the mental health side of this, how do you handle that? Because I'm sure that throughout your life you've been put in, you've brought up some of these. I'm sure there you have dozens more that you could tell us about. But when you're dealing in this world and you're talking about, you know, underrepresentation and trying to help people and also being a gay man, being a black man and and all that stuff. How do you yourself deal with the mental health side, taking care of your mental health? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I would say it is not easy doing some of the things that, that we have to do in our various roles. But having partners, and when I say partners, I mean partners as in people willing to collaborate. Having partners that you can work with, at least in my case, across my firm, I find that to be extremely helpful. And it's like partners of all backgrounds it's even more helpful when you're able to collaborate with people from the majority population. I find that to be most helpful because it's when white men get the issue of diversity and when they get what we need to accomplish because of diversity and inclusion, that makes my job so much easier. And that's when I've been able to find having a supportive family who, who listens, my husband listens to me ad nauseum go on about, you know, issues that I'm trying, that I'm wrestling with. How do I deal with these issues? And that's important to have uh, a good, stable, you know, home. And so, I mean, I've been able to navigate it because of that. But I think the, the biggest thing is just having a good network of colleagues at work who are buying in and approaching the issue and moving in the same direction. So you like to do a lot of group work. You like to work oh, yeah. out in a group. Oh, yeah. And sometimes people hate that. But I'm really big on storyboarding. You know, if there's an issue. Like I have a meeting today to talk about this opportunity that our law clerks, our summer law clerks, our summer interns, basically, they're law students. They've been invited to attend a meeting with one of our clients, but only the diverse law clerks have been invited and we have more than diverse law clerks. And so I just want to have a sit down conversation about, you know, why we are participating in the program, you know, what that means for all the law clerks, what it means for the firm and really trying to help them bringing along. And I think that's a very different approach than what what would have been given to me, you know, 20 years ago when I started my practice, it would have been, this is what you're doing. Have a nice day. And I really want to kind of get people on board. That gets back to your comment, Lucas, about, you know, how do you deal? with the non-diverse attorney who believes that they are being left behind. Well, part of it is bringing them along, helping them understand the story of what we're trying to accomplish today. There is an underrepresented group that we are trying to address right now. And this, in the end, these efforts will make it better for all of you. Is it racist to think that there's not enough black attorneys because not enough black people go to law school? I don't think that's racist at all. That's facts. I mean, the numbers are the numbers. You can't deny what the numbers say. In the last five years, law school admission rates have been, I think they've been actually increasing, but the actual number of law school applicants are down significantly. And in that, the greatest decline has been among African-Americans in particular. Several years ago at Ohio State, I don't think there were any African-American men in one of their first year classes. And so, I mean, that's one of the pipeline issues that we we struggle with. 
dealing with, you know, how do you get people into the pipeline? And so we're active with the Long Leadership Initiative, which is an initiative to help promote the pipeline for diverse candidates and other initiatives like the Columbus Bar Association Minority Clerkship Program or the Cleveland Bar Association Minority Clerkship Program. You know, we're really making an active role to try to to get those diverse candidates into our pipeline. We have a diversity scholarship to get people into the pipeline. That said, if you have fewer people to choose from, that's the reality that we have to deal with. But universities have made efforts to bring like, like Ohio State, for example, has done a great work to bring in more Asian students. That was a goal. So why don't universities make an effort to bring in more black law school students? You know, I think law schools are, there are economic realities involved with law school and and law school debt. And the people impacted the most often are people from low and moderate incomes. And those could be white, they could be black. But among that group, uh, there's been a a disparate impact among African-Americans. And so you may have a lot of interest getting people into your pipeline as a law school, but if people aren't applying, people don't have an interest in taking on that debt for a host of reasons. People don't see that there is an avenue for them uh, from a career standpoint. They're not going to apply. And it makes the law school job a little harder. It makes our job much harder because we now have to fight with all of these other law firms, some that are substantially larger than us, that pay more money than us, for the same small group of talent. You know, from a law school perspective, and this actually, I see this across the board from most previously underrepresented or underrepresented groups, and that is you know, a willingness to take on a large firm kind of you know work experience. When I was a law student and then soon thereafter, whenever I would go talk to the Black Law Student Association at Ohio State and Capitol, I, I noticed there was definitely a trend of people who wanted, who actively wanted to go into government service, who wanted to go into criminal justice, who wanted to go into you know helping my people. And that there's like a, when you are in an underrepresented group and you are the first one going to law school, that's one of the strong beliefs that, hey, I'm here to help my people. There is a historical reluctance of people in underrepresented groups to want to join law firms. So that's one hurdle that we have to get over. And that's not just with African-Americans or other people of color. It's also with gay attorneys. I know we, we've attended events at Ohio State and Capitol with their LGBTQ law student group. And and sometimes you see there is a reluctance of students who want to get involved with the big law. You know, it, it's, it's not seen as a, a real avenue for them to advocate. And so that's one of the areas that we are always trying to navigate. I want to thank you, Karim, for coming in and talking to us um, thanks, about this very important issue. Well, for all of our listeners out there, thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget, we love to hear from you. So check out our Facebook page at Facebook slash group slash Other Side Podcast, or you can always hit us up on Twitter at other side underscore POD. And until the next time, try to see things from the other side. Thanks.